You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, thanks for braving the snow today, and uh, it's great to have the rest of the campuses join us. Look, I'm I'm not going to lie to you. I have lots to get through here, and so what I want to do is have you just jump right in to the scriptures together with me. Uh, I'm in First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-four. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse twenty-four. I want to ask you a theological question as we get. As we get going, I know this is uh, usually I start with a little story that gets you ready to go, but I, I don't have time, so here you go. Here's your theological question that will pique probably your interest, okay? What do we conclude about one who has followed Jesus for a while but walks away from the faith never to return? Everyone who is listening to me right now has a friend, family member, someone close to them to whom this has happened. They've started off really well. Maybe they you know, came to faith in Christ in an in a alpha class or uh, intro to Christianity. Maybe they came to faith in Christ, a Billy Graham crusade. I don't, I don't know. There's a lots of different places. Maybe it was just in a private conversation at one point, and they started a, uh, walking the walk of faith, and they were going well for a period of time, but through a series of circumstances, they've just, they've just stopped. So there was a time where you would say there's kind of fruit of uh, righteousness and repentance, fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those, those things were evident in their life, but today, no more. They've abandoned Christ. Are they saved? There are three viewpoints uh, that the church has kind of held around this. Um, there's more, but the three biggest viewpoints are, are these. Um, one of them is what I call decisionism. Decisionism is uh, the idea that because someone came and expressed faith in Christ at one particular moment, you know, they, they, they professed faith, they said, you know, yes to Jesus, that that moment... Regardless of what happens afterwards, that moment was, was a sign that they're saved. And since we believe that, you know, once saved, always saved, the, the belief then is, well, even if their life goes, you know, on, off the rails, if everything ends up, as we call in other parts of the world, pear-shaped, it it doesn't matter. That moment was, was significant enough for them to continue to be in faith. I've been to funerals where that's the, 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 the person who has passed away, hey, in, in grade eight, they you know, went to a summer camp and came to faith in Jesus. There's very little evidence after that fact that they lived the life in line with the repentance that they claimed, but we're going to bank on that one moment. So decisionism. 
So the people who walk away from the faith are saved. That's what a decisionist says. The second viewpoint is uh, basically says, look, because you choose to get into faith, I mean, God does a lot of things in order to lead you that way, but because you ultimately are the one who chose to get into the faith, if you decide to choose to get out of it, God will honor that request. If you choose by your life to ignore or um, abandon the faith, God will honor that. And you are no longer a Christian. There are some people who would say you can come in and out and in and out. And there are other people who would say, no, you know, if you abandon Christ, that, that, that's it. But you can, you can have salvation and then you can lose it. The third viewpoint um, basically says that, listen, when you, when you are looking at the idea of saving faith in the Bible, you see, there's, there's a kind of faith that doesn't save, and then there's a kind of faith that saves. And the marks of the kind of faith that saves are that, yes, you're going to profess faith at a particular time, but it's going to work itself out in your practice and your life, and it's going to work out itself out ultimately in the perseverance in both the practice and profession. So if you drop off halfway through, it just, yeah, it means that what you had prior to that moment was actually not saving faith, because saving faith is the kind of faith that perseveres to the end. Decisionism, lost it, never had it. Here's what's really interesting about two of those views, which are, in the history of the church, these two are the biggest ones. I lost it and never had it. What makes them different from the decisionism is that what they're essentially saying is, regardless of how you got there in the end, you're not saved if you abandon the faith subsequent to your profession of it. So all these debates and stuff, which are important, you know, what actually happened, what's the nature of salvation, but at the end of the day, these two groups are saying, right, the person who believed for a moment and then fell away is not a Christian. And both of them would point to passages like this one, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Notice who he's talking to. He's talking to brothers. The church, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, urge one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? That, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Right? We help each other to keep short accounts with God because there's a, there's a challenge there. Uh, sin is a hardening thing. It ends up turning your heart away from God, and we don't want that, so we urge each other every day. Four. Why is this so important? Four. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We've come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So I have a question then. I think that that's clear. What is it going to require to hold our original confidence firm to the end? If you're a Christian, this is 
passage we're about to study is straight at the church going, claiming to be a Christian. It, it is focused on the religious type of person who, I don't know, would show up to church on a, on a, on a snowy Sunday morning in late January in Chicago. This, this passage is actually aimed directly at somebody like that. And it's trying to answer the question, okay, if, if continuing to the end is necessary in order to be saved, how do you do that? What's that going to require? And in this passage, I'm going to point out three things. One of them is it's going to require discipline. Second, it's going to require obedience more than religious participation. And third, it's going to require escape. Discipline, obedience, more than religious participation and escape. So let's look at the first of those. Um, I'm titling it, Winning the Prize Requires Discipline, because that's the language that's used by the Apostle Paul in the passage right at the beginning, right? Only one receives the prize. That's what you want to do. We want to win the prize, the prize being eternal life. So do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? He's working with an image here that the Corinthians would have been really, really um, aware of. The, the city of Corinth hosted every two years a big event, a big sporting event called the Isthmian Games. Uh, Corinth was located on an isthmus. And so from all over the world, Corinth was actually a crossroads of all the trade routes and so very easy to get to. And so they would host this thing called the Isthmian Game, where all the people would come from all over and they'd compete, right? It sounds like the Olympics to us, and it was, basically. It lasted quite a, long, quite a long time. People would fill up stadiums in order to watch the people run or watch them wrestle or do whatever it was that, the, that they had at the games at that time. Some of them involved horses and these sorts of things. So yeah, the, the Olympics. So he's saying, okay, so you Corinthians, you know this, because every couple years you go and you sit in a stadium and you watch runners run. You know that even though all the runners start the race, only one gets the prize. Now, in other parts of Scripture, Paul's going to use this image about running a race and saying, look, everyone who finishes the race is saved. So he's not using this image in the same way in both those places. This is not a competition, in other words. He's not talking about a competition between Christians. Well, I'm going to win the prize and you're not. He's talking about, look, picture the Isthmian Games when the running race is on, only one person gets to receive the prize at the end of that. What must one do in order to be the winner of a highly competitive athletic endeavor? And you know the answer, cheat. No, you, you, you know the answer, train. You, you have to train. So that's why he says, so run that you may obtain it. Run like a winner. Every athlete exercises self-control, there it is, in all things. So uh, one of the things you guys might not know is one of the guys on our staff, actually one of the men on our lead team, his name is Carl Barco. Carl, when I first met him, um, I went a little bit fanboy, and, and nobody else in the room understood why I was so fanboy about him. Anyway, I lived in New Zealand during the time when the America's Cup happened. The America's Cup is the pinnacle of sailboat racing anywhere. 
countries compete against each other and they end up, America won it so many times, they called it the America's Cup. But in the last number of years, New Zealand's won it. They've, uh, I think the Swiss have won it for a little bit, the Australians. So anyway, um, the New Zealanders had built basically an Olympic village around this event, around a big sailing event. And everyone from the city of Auckland was going and, and seeing this. I was in the city at the time, living there, and we would go down to the viaduct, as they called it, and to watch these massive, beautiful boats sail. Uh, they put a big um, fence up so that, that, you know, the plebes like me couldn't get, couldn't get into them. But I would stand at the fence and I would watch, you know, I would watch all of these uh, sailors get on these boats and think, what an amazing thing. There's different positions on the boats, but the hardest working person was what they called the grinder. The grinders are the ones who make sure the sails go up and the sails go down. They, they trim the sails, meaning they pull them tighter if they need to. They, like, they're the ones on the boat. If you ever watch a sailboat race, you're doing this the whole time. And it's really difficult. It's a very, I mean, you have to be a really big person in order to do this. Okay, so I meet Carl Barco for the first time. And he, I, I, he found out I, was from, I lived in New Zealand. And he said, oh, I was in New Zealand for a number of, a couple of years. I said, really? What were you doing there? He said, well, I was sailing there. I said, oh, doing what? And he said, well, I was in the America's Cup. I'm sorry, what? You were what? I was in the America's Cup. Like on the boats? Yeah, I was a grinder. No. What boat? America True. Oh, I saw that boat. I mean, they lost. But I saw that boat. What are you talking about? You, you're like one of the guys that I used to lean against the fence and see do this? Yeah. What was that like? He and I have talked. In my phone, he's, his name still is America's Cup Carl Barco. So we start talking, I've talked to him over months and months now about this. Whenever I get a chance, I ask him more and more questions for it. For Christmas, he gave me a picture of the, his, his sailboat from that event. And I was like, oh, I lived right back there. You know, it was really exciting. Here's what his typical day was. To, in order to compete on this level and try to win this race, he would wake up at 5 a.m. He would run one mile to the gym where he'd work out for 90 minutes run one mile home. Then he would eat breakfast, which consisted of six eggs, two chicken breasts, a ribeye steak, baked beans, what? Juice and oatmeal. He would then go out and he would spend an hour and a half loading the sails. I mean, guys, the sails are very heavy. And he and his other, the other grinders would go and they'd, they'd lo load all the sails onto the boat, which made them more hungry. So they had a mid-morning snack of a pizza or a hoagie, and then they'd go out and sail for four hours, and when they were coming back, he would eat the rest of the pizza and the rest of the hoagie and sleep for an hour inside the boat while they were being towed back in. He would have to clean the boat until 8 p.m., and then at, the, at 8 p.m., he would go home, uh, lights out at 10, but for the next two hours, he would eat half a turkey or a full salmon, and he would have a massage every day. Listen, some of you are like, this sounds like the best day ever. No, no. You try to eat that amount. It's ridiculous. But he had to do it. He said, listen, if I didn't eat that, every night I'd go to bed and there were, I'd lose four pounds. Oh, to have that problem, Carl, right? <laughs> I mean, if you talk to professional athletes, it's one of the things you learn really quickly. It's like, oh, I'd love to be a professional athlete. And then they tell you actually what's required. And you're like, I'd love to watch you be a professional athlete, you know? Can you get me tickets? In order to win the race, in order to 
compete at that level, you have to discipline yourself so that it is the primary only focus of your life. I could enter the race, but I wouldn't train like that, which means I, I'm not going to win. And this is Paul's point. You have to train that you may obtain the victory. What's the victory? Well, the prize is eternal life. If that's what we do, notice what he says, if that's, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. In those days in the Isthmian games, it was a wreath of celery. <laughs> no kidding. Which I'm like, oh, that is kind of perishable, right? You ever left celery out for a day? I mean, it's, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable one, so if that's the amount of work that goes into actually getting a, a wreath of stinking celery, imagine what kind of work and discipline is required and necessary for you to win the race and get the prize. So he says, look, I don't run aimlessly. I, I don't box as one beating the air. <laughs> I have, I have a point. I box beating the air. Hey, look at me, you know. You do the spins and they put you on Instagram and you look like an idiot. But he's saying, no, no. I train, I, I box with, with a goal in mind. And the goal is to take hold of the eternal life that the Lord took hold of him. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Listen, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Who's I myself? The stinking Apostle Paul, who's a better Christian than you. And even he's saying, look, if I don't do this, there's a chance I'm going to be disqualified from the very thing I've been proclaiming to everybody else. Which, of course, in the end means something really important. And that is... Even the greatest Christians must continue in faithfulness to be saved in the end. And that requires discipline. In Hebrews chapter 2, this subject is, is uh, brought up as well. I just want to listen to the language of this text. Because this is how people fall away from the faith. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention... To what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, you know, the one that Moses got on Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression against that law or disobedience, it received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect? such a great salvation. He's basically saying, listen, they received a revelation from God in the law, and if you broke that law, imagine the, the judgment that they received. How much more then, if you've received such a great salvation in Jesus Christ, the full revelation of God in the person of Jesus, and then you turn away from it, how much more danger would you be in? So don't neglect. So great is salvation. Don't drift away. We must pay more careful attention. Listen, um, 
most of the men in the room understand that the, the, the store called Target is, is like, it is like the, the Bermuda Triangle of, of women. There is a group of women somewhere in Target, even today, still looking at things. We, we haven't seen them for years. But that's my case when I go in with my wife to Target. If I turn my head, say I walk in the door and I look over to the left and there's some peanut M&Ms, which of course draw your attention. And they're on sale and you're like, ooh, peanut M&Ms. And I look at it, even for a brief second, I will turn around, right? And the goblins will have gotten her. And she is nowhere to be found. And I will spend the rest of the time watching, looking down the aisles. And as a guy, this is what you do. You walk down each aisle and look down. And then you go to the next one. You look down. And you go, if you ever see a guy walking up and down the thing, he's lost his wife. She's in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> thing about Target that's hard is that you actually have to go. They don't have everything as an aisle like in a grocery store. And so they mix it up with other stuff. And then next thing you know, you're wandering around in the bra section. And you're like, oh, no. And then you're all... Calling her repeatedly, but you know the phone's in the purse. Why is it in the purse? You have. Listen, when you go into the Target, gentlemen, you keep an eye on the back of that head, right? You do not be distracted. You must pay more careful attention to this woman, and you must go with her wherever she goes. You will go poor if you do not. But this is the idea that he's after. He's like, look, look. If you're not paying more careful attention to the prize of eternal life, there's a good chance that you might fall away from it, drift away. And that's how people fall away. It's not like on a Tuesday they decided, you know what, I'm just not going to follow Jesus anymore. No. It's when they're not noticing. They just, it's when they neglect. It's when they fall, fall away. So when we hear that kind of thing, one of the things that we do is immediately, if you're a Christian, you're like, oh, okay, that, that is a good word. Thank you, Paul, right? Train my body. All right, so I am going to uh, double down on my religious participation. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to get in growth group. I'm going to get in like seven growth groups. Like I'm going to do all the stuff, which by the way is awesome. Those are all gifts from God to help keep us in the faith. What's crazy about this passage, though, is the next thing that Paul does is go, okay, but there is a danger in religious participation. So second, I said winning the prize first requires discipline. Second, winning the prize requires obedience more than religious participation. So look at verse Look at verse, I think it's 2, 3. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So guys, I want you to think back, he says. Let me give you an example of how important it is for you to, for you to finish the race. Even though you've experienced all sorts of religious stuff, I want you to know that there are those in the history of the church who have experienced religious stuff but have, have walked away from, from God. So let me, let's just do a history lesson, he says. I want you to know, don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, right? So the people of Israel were under the cloud. Remember, they come out of Egypt, and they are led by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So they're being delivered from oppression by God's leading. 
And they all passed through the sea, right? The Red Sea, get to the edge, and the Lord does this amazing miracle to bring them out from the oppression that they were in. And all of those people were baptized into Moses. Uh, To be baptized into a person or thing is to basically say, I am with them. I, I am part of their group. And so here he's saying they were baptized into the man of God. They became part of the man of God's community that he was forming. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. They get out into the middle of the, in the middle of the wilderness there for a little bit, and God brings what? Manna every morning. They, in other words, God, there's bread from heaven. The Lord provides his bread to sustain them. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. Remember the water from the rock? So they receive sustenance through drink from God himself. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed him. And the rock was Christ. What he's saying here is, don't you you see? Jesus provided all of that for them. Just like he provided you deliverance from your enemy. Just like he provided allegiance to him in baptism for you. Just like you come and you take communion and you eat the bread from God and you drink the wine from God, you are just like them. You've had the same spiritual and religious experiences that they do. And if Paul's like, if I ask you right now, Tell me why you're a Christian or tell me how you got to be a Christian. You would list off one of those things, right? I prayed to receive Christ. Yeah, led by the pillar. Oh, I was baptized. Right, yeah, through the Red Sea. Oh, I go to church and I'm involved in the sacraments of communion. Right, you receive the spiritual food and the spiritual drink. So you're in the same situation. So you should realize that nevertheless with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness, these people who had all of those experiences, didn't receive the prize. These religiously active, hey, I could give you my testimony people, were overthrown in the wilderness. So now he goes and he's like, okay, What exactly did they do in the wilderness to get overthrown? So I'm going to take you on a fun Bible study with lots of scripture. Because he lists off four different things (laughs) that they did. But he's linking each one to a story in the Old Testament. I just want to read you that quick story each time. What did they do? Show us, Paul, how they committed evil. These things took place as examples for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. So learn the lesson from them. Just like the guy who comes into your health class in your freshman year and says, "Ah, you should never smoke. Like he brings his friend's lung and it's black. And you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know. Learn the example of these other people. That we might not desire evil as they did. What kind of evil? Well, don't be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat 
and drink and rose up to play. Where's that from? Well, it's from Exodus chapter 32. And here's what happens in Exodus 32. Moses has gone up into the top of the mountain. He's been gone for a while to receive the law from God. And the people are in the valley exposed to all of their enemies and thinking to themselves, you know, the God who brought us out here isn't here anymore. He took his buddy Moses and they're like at Epcot now. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, doofus associate pastor, and said to him, the thing they always say to the associate pastor, up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, look, we don't know what's become of him. Might be dead up there, I don't know. So Aaron said to them, you should repent for such a thing. No, take uh, off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives. Supposedly the ears of your sons and the ears of your daughters. Or maybe their sons and daughters were just made out of gold. I, I don't know. And bring them to me. I'll get a, whole bunch of, get a whole bunch of gold. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool. And he made a golden calf. And they said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Which is a dead lie, of course. Really? The thing we just fashioned it looks like a cow? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm on a winning trend, he says. People are loving me. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The language here is very much, well, when they rose up to play, some of their clothes didn't come with them. These people were saved through the sea. They were baptized, saved. I've got a story to tell you about how God's delivered us people, those people. So we go back again to 1 Corinthians 10. See, the people sat down to eat and drink up and rose up to play. Okay, but we must not also indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Where's that from? Okay, Numbers 25. While Israel lived in Shittim... The people began to, <laughs> do you love the Bible? Hmm, that's a word we don't use. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. In other words, they were cheating on God with the daughters of the land. God told them, don't go and hang out with the daughters of the land. They're going to draw your hearts away to their gods if you get too close. And they're like, nah. So they abandoned their husband, God, and they start shacking up with the daughters of Moab. And guess what happens? These daughters of Moab invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and they bowed down to their gods. God's like, I told you this would happen. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, I need you to take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. That the fierce anger of the Lord may, be, may turn away from Israel. I'm going to hold the leaders responsible for all of this. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, okay, they're having this big meeting 
announcing this in, the, in, in front of the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, right? They're all gathered there in the front, and they're announcing this. And along comes this dude. One of the people of Israel came, and he brought a Midianite woman to his family. Hey, honey, I think it's time for you to meet my parents. So he takes this Midianite woman, right, who's, wor- who's a worshiper of Baal. God has warned him against it, and he's walking literally through the congregation. I wonder what they're talking about. Don't worry about it, honey. You're, my parents will love you. In the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping, why? In repentance, in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Yuck. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were, ooh, there it is. It's a little bit of a debate about 23 or 24,000 in these texts, but you get the idea. They committed sexual immorality. Who are they? These are the people who ate the manna every day. Every day. Constant communion. Look at how great we are with God. I'm always eating bread from God and he sustains me. Also, I'm going to take this woman to my home and do with her what I will. We must not, can we go back to 1 Corinthians 10? We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And they were destroyed by serpents. Okay, uh, Numbers 21, verse 4, from Mount Hor, they set out on the way, or by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. You ever been with impatient people in your car when you go the long way? And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Dad, you know what this is like. They spoke against you. Why have you brought us up out of Illinois to the desolate wasteland of Iowa? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food. Is that true? No, the Lord provided it every day. There's no water. No, but the Lord's provided it every day. And we loathe this worthless food that it doesn't exist. See, it doesn't exist, but it's there and we hate it. What God has done is wrong. What you have done is wrong. How dare you do this to us? This wickedness. So they basically call what God has done for good actually wicked. And the Lord's like, oh no. <laughs> no, he sent fiery serpents among, these, among the people. And they, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Who, who are we talking about here? Right, the people who ate the food and the drink, the people who came across the rest, saved people. Supposedly. Back to 1 Corinthians 10, you get the last one. Nor must we grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers 14, 26, and the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation Grumble against me. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what have you, you have said in my hearing, right? All the grumbling that you've done in my hearing, because I hear all of it, all of the worries, all of the frets that you grumble out loud, I will do to you. That wasn't going to happen, but now it is, because you spoke it into existence, baby. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, the promised land, the prize. They would not receive. Except, of course, for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. Don't you see his point? I mean, I, I, listen, I read all of those so that repetition could strike you. He's saying, look, the people of Israel who had all sorts of opportunity from God, who were saved by God, who were led by God, are the same people actually who turned their backs on God, and they did not receive what was promised. They just had the law. You have Jesus himself, the full revelation of God. Imagine if God did that to people who just had the law. What will he do to those who trample underfoot the Son of God? You know, a lot of us, I think, believe that uh, we can dupe God. Just like we dupe everybody else. We think that we can somehow figure out a way to keep doing the religious stuff to make God happy, because that's really what he wants from us, right? That's what our belief is. If I just do the religious stuff, then and God will be happy with me. It doesn't matter what I do on the other side. You know, whether on Tuesday I act with the Midianite woman or what, it doesn't matter. Israel had a history of this challenge, and I just, I just want you to hear one more text Isaiah 1, this is God speaking to the people who thought they could dupe him. The people whose lives did not match their professions. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Guys, the offerings were things that he, he commanded them to bring. That was the worship that they were supposed to do. Bring no more vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, uh, your Christmas uh, extravaganzas, your Easter productions, the calling of convocations, we should get together and pray. Problem with the church, we don't have enough prayer meetings, so we're going to get together to pray, we're going to call a convocation. I cannot endure, note it, iniquity and solemn assembly. When you gather together for all of this stuff, you're sitting there and you're in iniquity and yet you're calling a solemn assembly. What are you, what are you doing? Your new moons and your appointed feasts. My soul hates all of the worship. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, oh God, we love you so much. We sing the songs. Look, Lord, look. 
I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. Look how excited I am for you, Lord. I will not listen, because your hands are full of blood. Oh, God! And when you expose those hands, he sees exactly what your deeds speak. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. You guys ever seen a false front of a building? Of course you have. You know, you walk up and you, you, see, you see, think of this beautiful building, you walk up and realize this is some dumpy warehouse behind it filled with trash. I, I gotta be honest, uh, I think the lives of so many Christians are that. It's just one big, and you're really good at it. You, you know, you, you can produce the acts, you show up for all the meetings, you do all the right things, man. You think so, but underneath it all is a heart of iniquity that is involved in deliberate sin against the living God, and you persist in that sin. It's not as if you're repentant of it. You just keep doing it because you think, because you can dupe everybody else, that you can also dupe God. But listen, listen very closely to me, because in Galatians, God addresses that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whoever, whatever one sows, that will he reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What do I do then? Right? Passages like this are really hard because you're at the end. You're like, oh my goodness, what? What do I do? You know, the beautiful thing is the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 10, if you actually like read through the passage and you get to verse, uh, verse 11, verse 11 and verse 14 seem like they should come right together. What's said in verse 11 is picked up in 14, but it's like Paul can't help himself. And he's like, can I give you verses 12 and 13 because I'm a Christian? Because we're not people who or of sadness, we, we offer good news even to the wicked. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Right? The third thing that you need to do is you need to escape. You need to escape from the iniquity and all of the things that are going on in your life that are dragging you away from the living God. You need to run away from them. And he's saying, look, therefore anyone who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. You think that you're in a good position, but you, you actually might very well not be. Look, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. Look, everybody throughout the ages of the Christian church has had to face certain temptations and you're like well it's so hard to live in this culture these days with all the sexual temptation and all of the capitulation that the church says right it's like every every year in all of history we don't choose the times in which we live but in every time in which anyone lives there are temptations that want to draw them away from the living god but they didn't fall away and neither do you have to fall away because god is faithful 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he provides the way, there's the word, of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, I'm going to finish all of this with a word to two different kinds of people in the room, okay? Some of you are sitting here and you heard that whole sermon and afterwards you're going to come up to me and you're going to say, that was really great. And the reason you say that is because you're like, I know a lot of people who needed to hear that. <laughs> and, and, and you're going to say, man, that's, that's exactly what people in the church, because you think that you are standing firm. And you probably are. You're probably in a situation where actually you're consistently following Christ and where you do fall down, you actually immediately come back to the Lord and say, I repent of that. You know, we're not, none of us are going to ever be perfect until we're in heaven. So on this side, all of our lives are lives of repentance, right? Falling away and coming back and falling away and coming back. That's the Lord, that's normal. That's the normal Christian life. And you're like, yeah, that's my life. I do that. Can I just, though, take the passage really quickly and, and shoot it your way? Take heed. Take heed, you who think you stand, lest you fall. Because there are lots of people in the history of the church that have sat in buildings like this and have heard pastors preach sermons like this who are like, yes, that's exactly right. And then five years later, no longer follow Christ. I can introduce you to some of them. What happened? Well, they didn't take heed because around them, it's like climbing up a, a big mountain or we're going to go on a ridge and I'm hiking in front of you and I'm like, hey, stop. And everybody stops. And I'm like, look around you and, and figure out where your next steps are going to be because this is a very dangerous part. And that's what Paul's saying to us. Look around. Where are the rocks that are potential slippages for you? And those rocks might be lots of different things. You might be fostering relationships that you shouldn't be fostering at the present moment. Well, it's really innocent. Is it, though? It might be innocent now, but will it lead that? Will you keep going down that path? Like, what's going to happen there? You make little, you know, hey, I can lie and cheat in this particular place. It's not a big deal. Really? Because, you know, consciences get deadened over those sorts of things. Take heed. I had to leave a church planting board on one occasion, a really important church planting board, not because I wasn't being, uh, having offering things that were good or anything. It was largely because I, when I sat there, I felt important. I remember sitting there thinking, I'm a pretty big deal. This is one of the biggest church planning boards in all the country. And I'm sitting here. And every word that came out of my mouth, I was afterwards thinking, they must all be impressed by those words. And I noticed that my heart was getting tied to the excitement of the celebrity of it. And I was like, I don't want any part of that. So I quit. Why'd you quit, Jeff? It was what's best for me. Take heed, let you fall. And finally, though, there's a lot of people who hear a sermon like this and they're like, I mean, it's hard to listen to it and not think, man, what are the areas in my life where I am actively disobeying God? It's in the private. It's like it's hidden from everybody else because I'm really good at putting on a good face and doing all the religious stuff. But it still sits back there, this disobedience. So in some senses, we're all hypocrites who hear this to some degree. If that's your case, can I just tell you something really important? First of all, understand the danger that you're in. 
but realize there's a way of escape. Have you ever thought that maybe in God's eternal plan, he had you come to church today to hear this message, to provide a way of escape right now? Because the Christian message isn't, you stink and you're horrible, you better work harder. The Christian message is, look at this horrible people of Israel and the God who keeps coming after them. We have a God who scans the horizon and runs toward the prodigals who return. So look, man, the right solution and answer is always back to Jesus. It's always back to Jesus because in him is found forgiveness and life eternal. The prize itself invites you to come back and say, come on. I can make your, skin, your sins as white as snow. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's take heed. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your kindness in, in offering us your word. Uh, passages like this, warnings, achieve a, an amazing purpose in our lives, just like the, they achieve a purpose in the lives of our kids when we warn them about the dangerous street or the slippery snow. We... We do it for their good. We do it because we love them. And Lord, I'm thankful that you warn us because you're good and you warn us because you love us. I pray, Spirit, that you would come and you would draw your people's heart back to yourself. You have a long history of doing that. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.